Hi everyone, this is Grace and welcome back to Four of a Kind Podcast. This podcast is for all those out there just like us trying to figure out what's next in our career. So join us and our guests as we discuss navigating our jobs, entrepreneurship, and all the ups and downs along the way. Before we got started, just wanted to say a big thank you to all of you who have been tuning in every Friday since we launched. Because as of our recording this episode, we have had more than 500 listens and we accomplished that in just four weeks. So that's pretty awesome. Also, thank you to everyone who has messaged us with comments and ideas for future episodes, which we're working on a few based on your ideas. Okay, now on to the episode. I'm here with Lauren and Kelsey. Michelle will join us back next week. And today we have our first interview. Lauren, I'll let you take it from here. Thanks, Gracie. Hi, everyone. So this week I got the chance to talk to one of my closest friends, Jen. She um, also went to business school with us. And the reason we wanted to chat with her is because as you'll hear, um, as I kind of walk through her background is she's extremely confident. She uh, is a hard worker and has had some great opportunities throughout her career thus far. And so she's had some unique opportunities, especially this early on in her career. So it's good to get her perspectives and we hope you enjoy it. So on today's show, we have an interview with one of our stellar classmates, Jen, who is a brilliant go-getter from the D.C. area. She has been in the C-suite of a number of companies. She's an angel investor. She has so many accomplishments, but plus she's still very young. So we thought it would be a great idea to pick her brain today and get her thoughts on a lot of topics that we have discussed in the past and what we want to discuss going forward. So you get some fresh perspectives. So welcome to the pod life, Jen. Hey there, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Okay, so let's get started. You, like I mentioned, you've been in the C-suite of a few startups so far, um, which is a huge accomplishment. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got your first role as a CRO at such a young age and kind of what it was like to be at that level? What did you learn? How did you get there? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, ultimately, Lauren, I was really lucky to have found companies in the Washington DC area that had room for a a hungry and ambitious uh, young individual straight out of college. I mean, I found companies that were looking for people who are really willing to kind of step up to the plate and, and do the position, not just that they were in, but kind of two positions above them. And ultimately, you know, the, the first time I became a chief revenue officer, that experience was a whirlwind. It was one of those opportunities that really shapes the way that you view your own leadership style and also has a pretty big influence on what you want to do. It was an incredibly rewarding, but also humbling experience. I, I think one of the things in terms of what I learned is I became hyper aware of the fact that I was young and I think that made me feel like I had something to prove. And so I became very aware of how I was perceived by others, And more importantly, I think I learned to really focus on the results of the job and and the results that you need to achieve for the business with the hope that, you know, if I was doing what the business needed me to do, if I was kind of kicking butt and taking names and the business was thriving with me in that C-suite position, that kind of everything else would fall into place. And so, I mean, did you take that? Because then you moved on to another company, another CRO role, uh, but you were kind of a vet this time. So did that kind of results driven, you know, kind of kicking ass, taking names attitude, do you take that with you? Did you find that it was still perceived as, you know, that kind of got you the respect that you needed? How is it different? How is it the same? Yeah, no, it's that's a great question. So I definitely, 
um, think that after you have your first C-suite position, and particularly when you're at a company that actually does well, and, and in my case, I was at a high growth company that actually exceeded goals year over year, it gives you a, a bit of a confidence booster, right? So when I went to my second position and stepped in at a startup as a chief revenue officer, I definitely think I had a little bit more confidence but I also really had to shift my mindset. So I think when you get promoted up through the ranks into a C-suite or leadership position, even though you may be young and even though you still have something to prove, people still know kind of what you're capable of and also understand your background. But when you're hired as an external C-suite member, you have to be really thoughtful about how you transition into a, a company's leadership team. And by that, I mean... Um, you can do as much research as you want during the interview process online, talking to employees, understanding where the business is, but being self-aware of how you're perceived and the fact that there's just less forgiveness. So, for example, when you're coming in and you're asking questions of direct reports, you know, there can be a, a big kind of wall of defensiveness that would be up there that really isn't there when they've worked with you for years. Um, when you're recommending changes early on, that can be very quickly discounted by your newness, Um or your lack of familiarity with their culture or their business. And so even though the, the ideas and mm -hmm. thoughts that you may have are very valid, you have to be really aware of your surroundings and really um, intentional about when you bring up certain recommendations and when you turn certain levers. Whereas when you're kind of working your way up through the ranks at a company, some of that, you know, kind of fades away. And so I definitely think that second, you know, job for me, I had a little bit more confidence, but I also had a little bit more to prove as an external hire. And I just found that I was much more diligent about what changes I recommended, how I interacted with my team and other C-suite individuals than I would have been had I kind of, you know, been promoted up through the ranks. Gotcha. And do you think like out of you switching into that role, do you think that kind of the way that you behaved or the way that you kind of were sensitive to how you were perceived, do you think that had a lot anything to do with gender or age, or was it because really you were the outsider in that perspective and you were coming in at, at a higher level and kind of not going through that rank and file that a lot of people in companies are used to? It's interesting. And, you know, I, I, I always kind of anticipate getting asked this question when I talk to folks and they want to know a little bit about my background, especially when they hear that I was a chief revenue officer, because that's a pretty male dominated position across the, the globe, really. I would say all of the above. So I think it definitely was the outsider component, but it it definitely was impacted. My success and the way I was perceived was definitely impacted by the fact that I was oftentimes um, the only, if not one of the few women, particularly in leadership, and was almost always the the youngest. You know, to be fair, mm -hmm. I was not always the youngest on management team, or I, I wasn't only the youngest on management team, but I oftentimes was managing individuals who, that were significantly more experienced than me and older than me. And so I guess, you know, when I think about the barriers that I faced as a chief exec, you know, as a chief revenue officer and a senior leader, I think I knew that barriers, particularly because I was a female, always existed. But I thought early on that they would maybe shrink over time is, is a good way to think about it. You know, I thought as I built my resume mm -hmm. and became more successful, you know, and, and kind of built that track record of success that they would, you know, get smaller and smaller or easier to overcome. And I think it's interesting because I do think for a lot of women who are aspiring to either, a you know, a CEO position of a VC backed firm or are female founders, you know, the barriers are actually higher 
And I think that's because for many, mm-hmm. the stakes are higher. And so I, I think that, you know, it impacted me as a chief revenue officer and then as somebody who was really interested in in CEO positions or being a founder because I felt like I was kind of starting at that net negative and just had to work really hard to kind of overcome those perceptions and, and prove that I could do the job. Yeah. You know, there are always ways that we kind of develop to like our coping mechanisms to deal with kind of that atmosphere. And so were there any behaviors or things that you developed or that, you know, were kind of set up to compensate potentially for some of that, oh, I need to try and fit in as the as a new young person coming in and and kind of driving the decisions of the company. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the in addition to focusing on the results, which is kind of a theme in my background and something I've kind of always done of just, you know, it's really hard to to get nitpick too much when you're when you're kicking butt and taking names on the numbers or when you're kind of surpassing people's expectations. But I think in terms of kind of coping with that challenge, you know, one of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about was um, the fact that I needed to be really aware of of when I push back on individuals or when I question particularly another CXO, so somebody on leadership team. Um, I think oftentimes, even if I was really thoughtful about my tone and my delivery and the format or the the manner in which I addressed a, an issue with them, oftentimes I, I was faced with a lot of defensiveness. And sometimes, you know, people were very insulted that I would question anything. Um, and so I think I had to be, instead of just frustrated by the fact that that shouldn't be the case, I, I think one of the ways I coped with that was being really thoughtful um, and very rarely reacting in the moment. Because even if my reaction was very professional and very fair, it looked and sometimes came off very emotional. And so I think one of the things I did is I spent a lot of time kind of debriefing from meetings that I had, um, gathering my thoughts, addressing things one on one with a team member as opposed to in a group setting where they may, you know, be a little bit more defensive. And so kind of one coping mechanism was just really thinking about my communication and being more thoughtful about my meetings and interactions with peers. And I think the other thing, frankly, was allowing the aspects that made me, you know, quote unquote, a, a great leader um, and, and to really also allow me to embrace the aspects that related to me being a female. So this idea that I was extremely personable with my staff and that was different than many of the other male CXOs that I worked with. And I allowed that to really turn into a strength that ultimately allowed me to build really strong cultures in the companies I was in. Yeah. So turning it into a strength is definitely, I think, one of the things that we're trying to understand how tactically we can we can do that, how to kind of take some of those things, those perceptions and kind of um, shape them into positives. And how how exactly do you know, do we do that, especially, you know, and a lot of us we're talking about very new situations and careers and, and career transitions. So speaking of transitions. Um, let's go into another part of your impressive background because you also do some angel investing. So how kind of did you get involved in the investing side? How has that experience been? Kind of what companies do you do you look at? Yeah, so I, I you know, I would say I kind of fell into angel investing, whereas everything in my background has been very methodical and bland and intentional. Um, you know, I actually kind of fell into <laughs> angel investing by just kind of meeting individuals in the business community and and doing it actually as a way to to plug into more economic development and community building efforts. So really, I actually approached it less from a, let me see if I can make a good business investment and get a return and more about this notion that, you know, ultimately entrepreneurship and the startup environment 
and ecosystem has major benefits to communities in terms of job creation, in terms of bringing innovation and, and, you know, allowing growth for communities across the United States. So I actually kind of fell into it as a way to just feel tied to my local community and wanting to kind of invest in the people who wanted to build businesses here. And so I was lucky in that regard. But in terms of what I look for, I guess I, I think about two things when I'm considering an angel investment. So I think first is I always we all want a large addressable market, right? Um, I think that's always one thing that is uh, always heavily pressure tested by any investor or VC firm. But ultimately, I also look a lot for products that don't just have a large addressable market, but products with cross industry appeal. And by that, I mean, I'm really looking for investments that can sell their product or service into multiple industries. And therefore, that variability or diversity really provides a defense against a major industry shift or regulation. And it also provides a ton of, of running room for revenue growth. And so I would say kind of diverse cross-industry appeal is important to me for any product or service company. And then I think the second thing is I look a lot at the founder. I mean, that's probably not a surprise, but uh, the CEO in particular, um, not just the founding team, has the biggest impact on whether or not I invest. You know, their actions, what they spend money on, how they spend their time, you know, do they delegate or do they kind of roll up their sleeves and do everything themselves? Kind of what's the balance there? And most importantly, how they interact with others. You know, do they do they really respect um, individuals on their team that they've handpicked? Do they micromanage? How do they speak about their team when they're not around? I think many of those soft personal skills kind of make or break that investor founder relationship. And so it plays a really large role in my investment decision. Okay, so even though, you know, you said you haven't been doing um, the angel investing for very long, that sounds like you have a significant amount of experience that I'm very much willing to learn from you to get try and get more involved on that side of the house. But during that conversation, you mentioned kind of the importance of founding teams and your interest in entrepreneurship. And we've had this conversation a bunch. And um, we also obviously have this conversation a lot on this podcast about our interest in entrepreneurship and why it's so appealing. So can you kind of go into why you find you have a desire to start your own business and kind of run with it? One of the things that if I'm being really honest with myself, I, I think one of the biggest drivers to becoming an entrepreneur is really testing yourself on whether or not you can actually build a business from the ground up. You know, a lot of folks who I think are extremely ambitious and driven, and, and obviously a lot of the people we've been lucky to, to meet with either in business school or, or in the workplace, I think have always kind of looked at at goals and challenges as something to be conquered and, and accomplish accomplishments to kind of add to their resume. And I think you know, for me personally, I've been really lucky to have a lot of challenges and tremendous opportunities early on in my career, but you reach a point where you're really looking for something that's very different. And so I think the idea of having to shift from building other people's businesses to seeing if you can build your own, it's kind of a very logical transition in my mind. What really drove me to consider starting my own business was the fact that I really wanted the opportunity to fully steer the vision and execution of the company. And to be fair, you know, as a as a functional leader, as a CXO of any kind, you have a pretty big say in, in corporate strategy, especially for your department or function. But I think it's very different because ultimately, no matter how senior you are in a business, 
a lot of decisions are just not up to you because it's not your firm. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. this may have less of a sting when it's like a strategic business decision. But when it comes down to things like the culture you create or ethical conflicts that you may, you know, encounter, which is very common, that starts to impact you in a pretty big way. You know, having to walk away from decisions because ultimately it's not your call. That, that takes a toll. And so I think the really yeah, the appeal yeah. is not just conquering the challenge of doing it, but also being able to really have a have a say in those critical decisions that make a company a great place to work for and really allow it to have the impact that it can. Yeah, and that kind of covers, you know, similar um, kind of my next question. It's basically why do we have this thought, that process that working for a company, working for someone else will never be 100% satisfactory in our like personal um, desires. And I think that that comes down to a lot of what you're, what you're discussing, even if you have the kind of authority to make the decisions in your own function, when it's not your company that you founded and started that culture from the very beginning, it's kind of hard to ever merge it into exactly what you want. And so that's just something you have to you have to deal with if you're not if you're, it's not your own, right? Yeah. Okay. So with all of the support that you have to start a business, I mean, I think friends, family, super supportive. Um, I think people that have worked with you in the past, super supportive. I know all of our classmates are extremely supportive. Um, what do you find are still the biggest challenges, even when people are telling you you can definitely do this? First and foremost a lack of focus, you know, I think it's really easy to make excuses or come up with reasons why you can't focus on your startup. It just, it's very easy. And I think part of the challenge is that there's nobody holding you accountable in the same way as when you're kind of in a, in a typical corporate job, if you will. And that's, I think one reason is probably a conversation for another podcast where I think creating mentorship networks and, thinking about incubators and accelerators can be a really powerful thing for an entrepreneur because I think more than anything, more than just resources, it's accountability that you're kind of moving that start startup forward. And I would say the second challenge for me has been uh, really the fear of failure. I think that's a big thing for a lot of people, actually. I think a lot of us have been lucky enough to be really good at our job. And I think this idea that you may suck at being an entrepreneur and you may not only fail overall, but you'll surely encounter failures along the way. I think that can be really daunting. I actually, you touched upon two other questions that I have for you, which um, go back to a couple of um, episodes that we've talked about in the past. And one was kind of that risk taking and and it, you touched on it when you were talking about fear. It seems like, you know, there's just a certain risk tolerance that, you know, we have this mental block about when it comes to starting a business where we suddenly become super risk averse, even though, you know, in our potentially in our more corporate jobs, we would, we would go for the next big thing. We would, we would take that risk. So do you kind of feel that that's the case? How, how would you look at risk and do you have any thoughts on kind of how your risk tolerance goes and how that helps you make decisions? So, and maybe an interesting way for for me to kind of talk through my risk tolerance would be to think about it as an entrepreneur versus an investor, Um, because I think a lot of people assume that because you have a high risk tolerance from an investment perspective that you'll be, you know, you'll have a high risk tolerance for starting a business. And I I don't always know that they're the same thing. Um, So I, I would say, firstly, my risk tolerance has 
has changed and, and evolved. And I, I find that as I get older and I have more family commitments or, you know, I have potentially more limitations in terms of where I live or where I do operations, I think it feels like there's more and more constraints and that has an impact on your risk tolerance. Absolutely. But either way, whether it's an investment or whether it's starting a business, it's a gamble, right? So I think the main difference when I think about risk is investments are all about placing a bet on an idea and another group's ability to execute on that idea. And there are unknowns mm-hmm. with that investment or with that that risk, if you will. But when it goes south, you, for the most part, lose money and maybe time. But when you start your own business, you're betting on yourself. And if there are unknown factors, which there always are, it's really your responsibility to address and manage for them. And so when your own venture goes south, you lose way more than money, right? You lose pride. And I think probably the most damaging thing is you lose confidence in your own abilities. And so what I would say is I think it's really it's really easy for everybody to kind of reach into that part of them that wants to become more risk tolerant on the investment side. I actually think that's a really great stepping stone. I still think it's really challenging as an entrepreneur just because you kind of have more to lose, if you will. It's just it comes down to that kind of mental block where you're like you're betting on yourself when you bet on yourself every day. And for some reason, when it comes to that kind of astronomical risk, it just you you think about it differently, you approach it differently for some reason. That's like it's very hard to get past a little bit. Okay, so one of the other topics that we had talked um, just previously was about um, was really about mentorship. And um, one of the things that I know I have gaps in is because I need better, more well-rounded professional mentors that I can go to and can help me, you know, kind of navigate a lot of my professional life. So do you think that you've have those meaningful mentors? I mean, how have those relationships evolved for you? How have they helped you? Do you think you have adequate, do you have gaps? I actually do think I've had some really meaningful mentorship relationships and I still have some great mentors in my, in my life. But I do think those relationships have evolved over the years. So I think when I was in my 20s, a lot of those mentor relationships formed out of admiration, right? So I I wanted the job these individuals had, or I idolized them for their skills or what they had achieved professionally. And I think now most of my mentor relationships are really less about admiration, though I absolutely admire those mentors and really more about an honesty and a mutual respect and at times even a really close friendship. And I think for me, the value of of a mentor is having someone who's going to listen, but also provide really candid and at times tough feedback. And I think when you're able to disagree with someone and you're able to kind of welcome that dialogue, that type of mentor relationship is really priceless. And so I, I definitely think that I have gaps. Like a lot of people, most of my gaps stem from where I am in my career. You know, strong particularly female mentors are important to me and there are just less females holding C-suite positions or founding companies today. I mean, we all know about this, um, not just a funding gap, but the very visible gap of, of not enough females in these positions. And I think hopefully this is changing, but for now I've tried to make kind of a conscious effort of building more relationships with female founders and CEOs. And, you know, I'll keep you posted on how that goes. So one that actually reminded me of one other thing that I um, wanted to ask you about, because you're also a professor and a teacher of Molder of Young Minds. So <laughs> are, do you feel like you share 
kind of the things that you've learned with your students? How has that kind of relationship evolved and how do you, what, what do they kind of grasp onto most readily? It's a great question. And it really is very interesting to people when they hear kind of what I'm doing now, um, having been a chief revenue officer, you know, for the last almost decade and now um, kind of trying to start an own business advising startups and, and being a professor. It's a very different world nowadays, but um, I definitely try to, <laughs> try to share, you know, some of the information I've, I've learned over the years with them. You know, it's interesting in my particular case, I work with not all of my students, but a lot of my students are first generation college students. Um, many of them are working full time. They're non-traditional students. Many of them have young kids at home. And um, I, I think it, while college is difficult for everybody, I think there's a level of sacrifice and, and kind of a willingness for a lot of the students in my classroom. What I found is that they're really eager to get advice on how they can be successful. And I think that they feel like they have a lot of barriers ahead of them. You know, part of what I try to kind of share with them is, one, how to be really laser light focused on on just kicking butt at your job. Um, this idea of kind of arming yourself with knowledge, learning, valuing learnings over money has been a really great guiding principle for me. So taking the jobs where you're going to learn from the most people and learn the most, um, you know, chasing skill set growth as opposed to promotion t and title changes so just a lot of these kind of principles really to guide their career. But I would say the biggest thing for me is I think we are at a really interesting tipping point where a lot of barriers related to whether it's, um, you know, things driven by racial bias or unconscious bias or the, the gender gap in the workplace are coming to the surface. And I think making sure that individuals feel encouraged and empowered to not just thrive in that environment, but to change it is something I'm, I'm really focused on. And so I've been spending a lot of time of how do we encourage, you know, females of the next generation to not apologize, you know, for their approach to not accept a binary view of their leadership style, but rather to to really challenge the status quo and, and start to change the, the leadership dynamic in these companies. Very cool. I think that is actually great advice to kind of wrap up and end with. I think that's a super positive note and a couple of great tactics and thoughts that we can take forward as as useful takeaways. So I just want to say thank you, Jen, for coming on and inter taking this interview and um, sharing kind of your experience and all of the awesome knowledge that you have, because like I said, you're spectacular and super accomplished. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So that was a great conversation that uh, Jen and I kind of have pretty regularly. So, you know, formally asking her all those questions was pretty entertaining to have her walk through every um, aspect pretty in depth about si her time in, you know, C-suite, already angel investing, you know, which I find to be pretty interesting. I know, Kels, you, uh, both you and Gracie have some thoughts about angel investing and found that, that part kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I just thought it was really cool to hear how she's getting started and using it as a tool for her community. And that, I mean, I was just listening. I was like, oh, Jen, that's amazing. You're great. Like, I want to be like you. <laughs> um, when I grow up. <laughs> yeah, I want to be like Jen when I grow up. So I thought that's a topic that I think would be really interesting to dive into a little more on a full episode, especially because there's just so many different things to talk about is one like the way Jen is using it as a tool for community building and the way um, we've been hearing and women in the startup community, this is a way to get more women investors and more women founders. And I think that's a conversation that's really exciting too. And I know, I think 
just wanted to clarify, maybe Gracie, you can clarify this. As an angel investor, um, Jen did need to be considered an accredited investor. Is that right? So there are a couple rules um, before you can jump in and make these in- investments that Grace, I think, am I right on that? Yeah, no, you're right, Kelsey. So to be an accredited investor um, at the individual level, you'd have to be making an annual income of at least $200,000. Or if you're on a joint basis, if you're married, $300,000 for the past two consecutive years. And, you know, you'd have to be able to demonstrate that this is the income level that will continue kind of going forward. Or you can also be considered an accredited investor if you have a net worth exceeding a million dollars, either individually, again, or jointly with your spouse. Okay. That just also, that can include your primary residence. So that's another important point. We'll we'll link, we'll find an article and we'll link this in the show notes since... Probably have an episode, an, uh, an entire episode dedicated on angel investing. Yeah, I think that would be great. Get the get the professionals to come help exactly. us talk about this, this topic. <laughs> Did you guys find um, other aspects of our interview interesting? Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting when she was talking about how she wanted to make sure she was super thoughtful on when to push back, when questioning other leaders and being thoughtful about her communication. Um, so I think that was really interesting. And I think curious how that's different for our male counterparts, right? I, I don't know if they think about it that way or they think about it too much the way we do. Yeah. And part of kind of why I was going down that line of questioning was about those coping mechanisms. I am curious if men kind of build up those same walls as readily as I know each of us has. And so that was kind of the basis for kind of going down that and seeing, you know, you you can be successful. You just kind Mm -hmm. of have to modify your behaviors and which ways are, which tactics are more successful than others to do that. I think, again, another really interesting topic for an episode. There's a lot There was a lot in what she said in that just like one sentence, even one, how she's thoughtful in preparation. And that preparation even has to do with preparing how to be in a mindset to respond or if she knows there's going to be some adversity. I just mean just even in terms of different ideas or idea pushback in the room, like that's part of the prep process is how to respond, not just the content of your message. So I thought that was interesting. But I think there's a lot more we can and should talk about there because that's, again, another one of those areas where we just feel like maybe a female and male perspective might be a little different or we got to figure out a way to bridge the gap there. So when she talked Mm -hmm. about being perceived as, you know, someone emotional, did you guys have any experiences on that? Or do you, I don't know, is that something that you came across with, have come across with at work too? I have not. I've been told I'm very serious and I'm not emotional. So. <laughs> so I probably have the opposite problem. Same, but that's kind of, I think, similar for me. But I think it goes back to that coping mechanism. I think I was told, like, I cannot be emotional, so therefore I am not emotional. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Like, that was my yeah. coping mechanism. I'm like, I have to be serious. Another interesting part of the conversation that I actually... I was talking to my husband about yesterday was her discussion about teaching her students to focus on chasing what skills they need to build up versus promotion or title. I think that's invaluable. I I just think, you know, if that's what you're focusing on, then you're probably focusing on the right things in the long run versus focusing on, okay, what does, what do I get in this, you know, immediate promotion? Who do I need to kind of plow down to get there? 
Yeah, I agree. I thought that was great advice. I think at a very basic level, considering what new skill a role or opportunity can bring you and what and sort of the learning, the learning curve, not in the sense that like, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn. Like that's kind of scary, but the learning curve in the sense that, okay, I can go in here and I can, every day can be something new and that's exciting. And I think just making sure that part of consideration of a process in the job hunt, in career growth, in taking on the next project in your current role even. And this is not to shy away from any conversations around how to get that next promotion, how to get a raise, how to make sure you feel like you're being paid for the work you do. I think that's also important to figure out how to navigate, but making sure that this is also part of the conversation when you're thinking about career was really good advice. Okay, so I think um, we're ready to wrap it up and we have lots of episodes that we can, now we have lots of ideas for new episodes in the future. Well, thanks to Jen. We're really excited to have her on the podcast today, and we look forward to more interviews in the future. So again, please continue to send your ideas, comments, and suggestions, general love, et cetera. Um, you can send us an email at- four- General love? Well, I don't know. You can just be like, hey, that's great. That's fine. It doesn't have to be. I like this podcast. Sorry, I completely just derailed that ending. <laughs> All right. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, send us an email at fourofakind at gmail.com and spell out the number four and follow us on Instagram at fourofakindpodcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to subscribe and rate and review. Um, that will help us in the long run to get some more listeners. And Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye.